This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is civil litigation attorney Ms. Jane Conroy with the New York City-based firm Simons, Hanley, and Conroy to discuss applying criminal statutes in prosecuting healthcare fraud. Recently, Ms. Conroy won cases in civil court against Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart related to opioid prescribing. Ms. Conroy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here, David. Ms. Conroy's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, in light of ProPublica's and the New Yorker's co-published November article, how the visionary hospice movement became a for-profit hustle, that lends further evidence to Eric Hoffer's infamous line, every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. In light of the Lowne Institute's recently announced Shukreli Awards, at the top of their 2023 list is the perennial favorite, Medicare Advantage upcoding. I should note as an aside, half of all Medicare beneficiaries are now enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And moreover, the fact that Medicare fraud annually amounts to upwards of 10% of Medicare spending, which would amount to approximately $90 million, 90, excuse me, $90 billion. It may be appropriate to begin my 11th year of producing this podcast by asking the question, does healthcare fraud ever land anyone in prison? With me to help answer this question is again, Ms. Jane Conroy, recognized by her peers as one of the nation's leading mass tort and product liability attorneys. So with that, Jane, no pressure. Uh, let me begin by asking, and it may be best by starting uh, with this question, what civil dispute was settled uh, in your recent cases between your plaintiffs and the three large uh, companies I noted, uh, Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart? Sure. Um, to answer that, I'm going to step back a little bit in time because Please. maybe others are also familiar with the large settlements against the big three distributors, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson and then also the manufacturer Teva and the manufacturer Allergan um, of, of opioids. And these are distributors of all sorts of pharmaceuticals, but opioids as well. Mm -hmm. And then the most recent settlement with the three chains, Walgreens, Walmart, and CVS, for their distribution and their dispensing uh, of opioids. So all of that started with lawsuits filed beginning around 2016 under an, a fairly novel theory for this kind of litigation, which was that these companies were all contributing to a public nuisance by failing to follow the Controlled Substances Act in their distribution, their manufacture, marketing, distribution, and dispensing of controlled substances in the United States. So the last the, the three chain pharmacies that settled, that's sort of part of our ongoing litigation, and they are the most recent large 
companies to settle that litigation that's pending in federal court in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, thank you. And and these settlements were uh, to a substantial amount of money, hundreds of millions, correct? Uh, we're in the billions. So the oh, excuse me. We are we are at about fifty billion in settlements um, for the for the country. Uh, for the for all of these municipalities across the country, as well as um, some state attorney generals as well. Okay, and just for clarifying, in in your cases, who were the plaintiffs generally? The plaintiffs in our cases were communities. We call them subdivisions, but generally, depending on the way a state is set up, it's either a county that would, for example, be running the fire department and the EMT and uh, the public health department. In some states, it might be cities or townships, but these are municipalities that were the plaintiffs, not individuals. Okay. Uh, Thank you for that. Again, since these are civil disputes, the decision uh, results in financial uh, fines or penalties that uh, the defendants that the court order the defendants to pay so let me let me well i'll i'll stop you there we don't have the ability to get fined a a civil action um the the most that we can do in a civil action and this is either it could be a car accident a slip and fall in a supermarket or it could be this kind of enormous mass tort case all we can do as lawyers on behalf of our clients is recover damages. Okay. Hopefully put them in the place that they were before the tragedy. But we we can't impose fines and we can't uh, impose any kind of criminal penalties. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. that. That's important. But, but so let me, let me then, let me, let me just move then to your knowledge. And, and I wanted to spend, because this obviously these cases have, uh, received a substantial, appropriate, substantial amount of attention. So let me just transition to, to your knowledge, um, in these long, numerous cases regarding uh, opioids, to your knowledge, was was anyone uh, ever sentenced to a criminally charged and sentenced to a prison term? And I'll just note as an aside, and correct me if I'm wrong, relative to Purdue and the Sackler family, my, my understanding is the Sacklers have not yet uh, they may still be, but they've never been criminally charged, correct? So they're off the list. Well, of, correct. Yeah. Let me let me also step back in time to answer that. Um, back in the early two thousands, myself and my law partner started a lawsuit on behalf of individuals who became addicted to OxyContin against Purdue, and against and we the reason the basis for our lawsuit was. Uh, lies in the labeling of the of the product oxycontin that were put there by Purdue and by the you know by the Sacklers because they own Purdue. Mm-hmm. That case took about seven years to wind through the civil process, and at, toward the end of that case, the Department of Justice became involved and subpoenaed my partner and I for all of the information that we had collected in the civil lawsuit. And that happens, by the way, quite a bit um, between the Department of Justice and civil lawyers. And 
they decided to prosecute criminally Purdue Pharma. And actually, there were felony misdemeanor convictions against the general counsel of Purdue, the medical director of Purdue, and the uh, CEO of Purdue, and, and the largest fines at the time implemented by the Department of Justice and also the, uh, the state of Virginia. So Purdue was found to be uh, criminally responsible. It's a little complicated with the Sacklers because you, the Sacklers own Purdue, but the Sacklers at, at certain times were not involved in the running of the company. So it's a little, so that there were criminal prosecutions. So, um, and that could still happen if the Department of Justice makes that determination with any of the corporations that have been sued civilly in this litig- in the litigation we're currently involved in. Okay, thank you. I did read a DOJ press release, and it does state that they were found, uh, they were convicted, as you noted, of criminal charges. But, but, but to be specific, those just the, the the conviction for for based on these criminal charges led to, um, and I'll, I'll call them appropriately here, correct fines. They were financially fined, correct? Purdue Pharma was financially fined. The three individuals that I spoke of pled guilty. They did not serve time, but they pled guilty to felony misdemeanors. And I know, for example. Um, they were on probation and the general counsel lost his bar license, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but let's, let's move on. When we spoke in, in preparation of this call, I made note there are potentially criminal statutes that can be exploited to file charges in, in healthcare fraud instances, probably the most Noted, maybe notorious, is the 1970 RICO statute. So my question is, what, in instances of healthcare fraud, if there are criminal charges brought, um, what criminal legislation, what provisions are usually exploited to uh, file a criminal charge in, in these instances? Sure. Typically, what will happen is we will hear about myself as a, as a civil lawyer will hear stories of individuals who are being harmed by a drug or a device, or I will read an article, a clinical study in the New England Journal of Medical Medicine or the Lancet that will talk about what's happening based on observations out in the field, scientific studies, etc. We've all seen that in things like Vioxx or Vextracelebrex uh, or transvaginal mesh cases. Those cases can take one of two paths and they can happen at the same time or at different times. I can file a civil lawsuit on behalf of an injured person. I can then embark on discovery so that I can get the emails and the internal studies, etc., done by the company. And one of two things can happen. At that point, the Department of Justice or a district attorney may come to me and say, uh, state of New York or the United States would like to subpoena the information that you are collecting in this civil lawsuit 
because we think that this company may actually have committed a crime instead of negligence. Because usually I'm in the world of negligence. Was it a foreseeable injury? Should you have done something to prevent it versus an intentional or criminal act? Sometimes I'm the first one out the door and the Department of Justice comes in later. Sometimes the Department of Justice is working at exactly the same time. But we never know that because they work on their own. They do their investigation quietly and without, you know, without alerting whoever they're investigating. So those are the sort of ways that these cases can can pop up. With respect to criminal findings, there's really no time frame on that. There is a time frame when I'm representing someone who's been injured. I need to bring that case within the statute of limitations. But during the pendency of my investigation, if I find out that there's potentially criminal activity, there's no statute typically on what on what the government lawyers can do. Okay, thank you. So that's sort of general procedural answer. Let me ask you specifically, uh, since this statute appropriately or not gets gets noted quite frequently, this is the 1970 RICO statute. Uh, could could you, which includes, as I read about what RICO provides or allows, that includes civil penalties. Uh, as part of that law, to what extent, if any, yes. does RICO serve as a useful uh, tool uh, in criminal prosecution of fraud? Well, I'm not sure I can comment on how useful a tool it is in the criminal prosecution of a fraud. But with respect to the civil prosecution of a fraud, mm-hmm. it's extremely helpful. And we do plead it we, civil attorneys, mm-hmm. plead it quite often. The problem that comes up on the civil side, when we draft a complaint and we hear about something that's happening and we believe certain things have occurred and we make allegations in a complaint and we make allegations concerning some sort of criminality, like a RICO statute, we often don't have the internal emails. We don't have access to what happened in the company. So we have a very hard time on the civil side pleading a case that will survive a motion to dismiss with respect to the RICO statute. Sometimes RICO is best for us to be pled later in the case. So we would file a complaint for negligence We would get a lot of information. We would start to take testimony of corporate executives and some of the scientists. And as we learned more about the case, we might then amend our complaint and add a RICO claim because we would have more chance of surviving the legal process with a RICO complaint once we have more information. So plaintiff's lawyers on the civil side are at a bit of a disadvantage Starting a case because we don't we, we have the injured party, but we don't always have all of the inside information about how that injury occurred or why it occurred, and that's so important for the RICO claim. Okay, thank you. Just to note uh, for the listener, RICO is the acronym Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. 
uh, again passed uh, in 1970. I did forward and, to- and I would say one more thing, sure. David. The, another complicating factor with, with RICO and racketeering is you need more than one conspirator or more than one defendant who's working together to create the racket. And mm-hmm. so that means we're, you know, we, we may sue one defendant and then find out there's another defendant involved and that would create the racketeering. But it's complicated from where we, the civil attorney, start because we're starting with the injured plaintiff, right? Not, not the, 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 you know, not where maybe a district attorney or an attorney general might start, which would be an investigation of the actual uh, potential defendant. Okay, so as you know, use of an, an enterprise uh, for for a pattern of racketeering or loan shocking conspiracy. Um, yeah. So that's the nature of that statute. Let me let me ask you. Um, you know, the most I would assume common when we're talking about a healthcare fraud is instances of billing. Um, and there was a recent Kaiser Health News article, December twelfth, uh, that concluded HHS quote unquote does little to track or police future endeavors because HHS keeps a list of individuals barred from participating in Medicare and Medicaid programming or billing under Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and this, of course, the criticism more generally is, is, is the limitations to the phrases pay and chase. So relative to um, uh, Medicare fraud, I asked this question because, of course, at the top I noted that it's estimated that anywhere from 3 to 10% of Medicare Billing is fraudulent, and you you may you may be aware. I'll throw in, and for some reason this this case has always stayed with me, and this is the case of Jacques Roy and his colleagues in Texas, who fraudulently billed a Medicare program under the home health benefit. Uh, I read the 2016 uh, sentence. the The total dollar amount that the plaintiffs were required to repay exceeded seven hundred million dollars. So needless to say, uh, fraudulent billing is can be a significant problem in Medicare and Medicaid. What's your general understanding? What general comment could you make as as a recognizing a civil uh, plaintiff attorney relative to this this most general issue of fraudulent billing? Well, it's there's no question it's an enormous problem and it affects all of us whether you're a lawyer or whatever you are, it affects us because it all increases our healthcare costs. From where I sit as a civil lawyer representing plaintiffs, my clients, typically individuals, are not able to sue on behalf of Medicaid or Medicare because they have been found to have been lied to about you know, particular healthcare services or pharmaceutical products. If occasionally we might be brought in to assist in the representation of a state or um, maybe even a municipality, if they felt that their Medicaid or Medicare programs were being um, exploited. But again, that's in the hands of sort of government lawyers, not, not, private um, 
civil lawyers because those just aren't the kinds of clients we have that we could represent and bring that kind of a lawsuit. But this case, this opioid case, has opened uh, so many doors and so much information about the kind of data that is available and in the hands of not just the government about what kind of exploitation there might be of Medicaid and Medicare and maybe even pharmaceutical benefits. It's opened the door to the kind of data that the manufacturers, the distributors, and the dispensers have in helping to track down some of those uh, individuals or enterprises that are exploiting Medicaid and Medicare. Because once you have a lot of data available, you can start to see patterns, you can start to see unusual activity. This was the basis for our opioid litigation, the Controlled Substances Act, which was also, which was enacted around the same time as, as RICO 1971. And in the Controlled Substances Act, they said, Everybody that has a license to distribute, dispense, or manufacture an opioid, a controlled substance, has to inform the government if there's any unusual activity with respect to the frequency of the, uh, the ordering, the manufacturing, the dispensing, the pattern, or the size of, of the orders. And once you're collecting that kind of information, and it's very, very detailed, and it becomes more detailed every day, as I'm sure everybody is familiar. You, you go to, a, for example, a CVS, and the receipt you get tells you all the things you're probably interested in or maybe would use for a coupon going forward. So I think we're learning a lot from this type of civil litigation, like the opioid litigation, how, do, how not just private lawyers, but government lawyers, can begin to use the data that's available to ferret out the criminal activity that's taking place with respect to Medicaid and Medicare. Thank you. I'll just note on the uh, Jacques Roy, this was this, this sentence, correct, uh, correct myself. Uh, he was convicted in 16, sentenced in 17. He, he and his co-conspirators uh, were, um, the decision, the repayment amount was $739 million, and uh, they were convicted of uh, a sophisticated healthcare fraud, uh, and they conspired in defrauding uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but I did want to ask you about pharmaceutical marketing, because that's the other substantial significant area where, where we see this, call it, uh, whether it's civil or criminal uh, uh, fraud, it's it's obviously pervasive. Um, I actually looked that um, if you look at the uh, the largest settlements for uh, pharmaceuticals disabusing uh, uh, marketing practices, um, the the ten largest uh, fines uh, in the recent past that date back to 08 equaled fourteen billion dollars, and this was mostly uh, a marketing fraud. Also, uh, fraud-related uh, false claims, um, and mostly off-label promotion and kickbacks. Um, I'm interested in your comments relative to a uh, related issue of, of pharmaceutical marketing. And then you started to answer the question, so maybe as a follow-up, I'll ask you about how might we be better at policing 
a healthcare fraud based on our, the opioid uh, experience. But let me just start by asking again uh, your general comments about the policing of uh, pharmaceutical marketing abuses. Sure. And I would say that in the last 20 years, probably all of the significant civil mass tort cases concerning either pharmaceutical products or devices have, have in general, relied on the false marketing around those products. Either, and typically, it's not the, it's not what they say about what the product can do. It's the failure to tell the public something, some kind of a risk associated with the product. And so omission is as much of a marketing issue as, you know, puffery saying, you know, this will make you better or whatever. So mm -hmm. you need to, you know, it, you have to have both the risks and the benefits of the product. You can't, you can't go in one direction or the other. So marketing problems are kind of at the base of most of the litigation that you see. The primary problem, I believe, when, when you've cited the $14 billion figure for the fines that have taken place over time against companies that have been found to have falsely marketed their products, we're talking about blockbuster drugs. We are talking about if you were to take the $14 billion and put it against the amount of money that whatever whatever those companies were, if you added up the products, I am sure you were at $500 billion in revenues from those products. So the problem is fines just are not large enough to be effective in stopping this activity. And so, but I will say this, look at the talc situation with Johnson and Johnson baby powder and the asbestos in the baby powder. You could find Johnson and Johnson, but it had nothing that could not compare to the risk that Johnson and Johnson faced from all of the, the lawsuits that they would be um, subject to from individuals all over the United States who developed cancer. That's why they took it off the market because of the civil lawsuits, not because of the government fines on the company. So there's, you can look at the fines, but you also have to look at the, the success rate of the civil litigation in exposing the activities of those companies and costing those companies an enormous amount of money because they lied to the public. And so it's really a combination of the government and the civil uh, lawyers doing their, you know, doing their jobs. So to be, to be better at, catching this out it's it's just more transparency it's more people like yourself david asking how do we do a better job at this we we do a better job by exposing the type of information for example that we found in the opioid litigation exposing the lies in the marketing exposing the idea we had a trial against walgreens exposing their you know, not their their problems with not putting enough pharmacists at the counter and giving them the tools that they needed to prevent diversion 
to prevent those opioids from going out the door to the wrong people. So it's a, it's a combined effort. I mean, it, the system works, but it could be so much better. Right. Just, I appreciate your point about the numerator denominator and the 14 billion fines over the denominator of what total sales are. In fact, you read these stories that after settlements be, been reached with a pharmaceutical company over marketing abuse, that the shareholder stock actually that day actually goes up um, because the penalty yep. isn't that significant and confidence in the company is somewhat restored because the, a dollar amount has been named or a fine amount has been identified. Let me, I do want to leave us time for this question. You somewhat answered it by saying um, uh, the system is working, but of course this is a policy discussion or uh, this podcast is, is titled a policy uh, podcast. In some, my question is, or I ask you to possibly say more, um, how might we, I mean, I'm assuming you would agree that we could get better at this, right? I mean, we would see, if we got better at it, maybe we'd see less instances of marketing abuses, uh, fraudulent billing, et cetera. So the question is, what policy reform recommendations uh, would you make? And they could be criminal or civil regardless, but how do we get better at this such that we see less uh, fraud, since, of course, as you noted as well, this this problem impacts everybody who's a patient, and everybody sooner or later is a patient. Yep. Um, you know, one thing one thing that we as civil lawyers are constantly fighting about, and and if anyone were to look on the docket of the opioid litigation, they would see this. When we get documents, um, emails, and communications from the companies under the discovery process. And when we take depositions of the individuals in charge of certain departments, those are all confidential and, 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 and kept and are protected within the litigation. We are always fighting on our side to, to bring that kind of information to the public so that journalists can write about it and academic institutions can study what's been happening. For example, in our opioid litigation, every time we settle with a defendant, it's not just, it's not just the money that we are trying to recover, because that's what we can do. We recover damages. We are also demanding injunctive relief that the, that the attorney generals will put in place so that the activity stops. We don't have the ability to police that, but states and cities can police that. And we are calling upon the court to order that all of the documents produced by a particular defendant, with the exception of things like trade secret, you know, the formula for Coca-Cola or something. Mm -hmm. We're not asking for that, but we are looking for those documents to become public. And we have done that in the Purdue bankruptcy, we've done it in the Malincott bankruptcy, we've done it in these large settlements against the corporate defendants and opioids, that they become archived and kept at an academic institution or more than one academic institution. So the means and methods of these frauds, this misinformation, the lying, the fraud, can be studied to help everybody try to stop it in the future. I mean, this is, none of this is particularly clever, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just profits over safety. 
And the more, I believe, the more exposure that just the general public has to the, you know, just to be thinking, is that a, am I not hearing something? Is there something not correct about this? Is someone lying to me about this? Is there a reason why this drug is so expensive or is there a reason why it's so cheap? You know, what's actually happening? What are the, how can, you know, that's the way we can change the way we as, you know, patients or people that have to, at some point in their lives, deal with the healthcare system. That's the only way we can have some control if we understand more the way it works and the motivations. And one of the things that we do in the civil system is try to get that information out to the public. So it's not just a headline of, oh, the distributors settled for a hell of a lot of money in this opioid litigation that nobody knows a lot about. Mm -hmm. It's this is the kind of injunctive relief that those distributors must comply with for the next 25 years. And they must turn over all of their documents to a particular archive that's controlled by a particular group of universities for study. Those are the kinds of change that we can make that doesn't grab the headline, but really is what changes uh, the way this all works. Behavior. You remind me of the line, as you've heard, I'm sure, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant or sunshine and the best disinfectant. Yep, yep. So with that, uh, yep. Jane, we're, we're about at our time. I appreciate this overview. Uh, you're explaining uh, how this uh, how this works. It's very helpful. Uh, let, let, let's hope we see, we see fewer of these large uh, cases. The you know, Let me just ask one quick final question. Relative to the, um, I mean, I imagine any number of these suits sooner or later involve plaintiffs who are likely survivors of individuals who, uh, you know, took medications inappropriately and died. I mean, we're we're talking about people, a loss of life here. This is just not, you know, uh, uh, these are just not faulty financial transactions. Correct. You, you couldn't be more right. And I will tell you that is um, when I began this litigation in 2000, we represented individuals or family members who had lost loved ones. Those cases individually, one by one, are almost impossible to win against a Fortune 50 company, to have one person go up against one of these companies. It, we we were able to go after Purdue, but frankly, all we did, Purdue was fined. And as we spoke about earlier, their, you know, three of their executives were found, uh, were, were charged and pled guilty to a felony. But what happened after that, it put a price for every other company to jump into the opioid business. It didn't stop anything. So in order to, in order to effectuate change, and particularly in something like the opioid epidemic, which there isn't enough money in the world to try to begin to fix what has happened here. Mm-hmm. So that, so it seemed to make sense among the, among the states and the cities and counties to try to focus more on how to abate the problem going forward, how to get rehab centers 
and training into the schools and more Narcan on the streets and to really change the way opioids are prescribed and the way they're distributed and dispensed. And that was potentially more achievable by, by representing communities rather than by representing individuals. It's not perfect, and I couldn't agree with you more because I know where the tragedy lies here, and it does lie with individuals. But in order, this problem is so big, it, it, this seemed currently like the, like the only way to really assemble enough firepower from the states and the communities to try to do something going forward that would last for 20, 25 years. So we didn't just, we didn't run into the problem of the tobacco litigation where it just didn't go towards the abatement of mm-hmm. smoking. Right. So the end, tough, right, right. tough decisions, tough, tough decisions. Right. Money, money is a very flawed uh, way to repair all this. Uh, and there's no amount of money even at that. So thank you again. Uh, Jane, for this uh, overview, very much appreciative, uh, very helpful, and I wish you every success going forward in your in your future cases. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you, David, for shining a light on this. Because the more everyone knows, the more we can kind of work to uncover these problems. All right. Best of luck. Take care, Jane. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.